Hi guys, welcome to this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. We hope you're all doing well and thanks again for tuning in. Before we start, as always, we need to thank some more of our Patreons who have supported us. So a big thank you to Anne-Marie, Maddie Jade, Landry, Rebecca with a K, Alina, Lucy, Ginger and Lisa. Your support is very much appreciated, guys. You guys may or may not have noticed that we're on a bit of a social media hiatus at the moment, and we're really just trying to get back to why we started this podcast, which was to share the stories of the victims. So I know it does make it a little bit harder to contact us, but you can still send us emails at truecrimesisters at gmail.com to request cases and provide us with feedback. Patreons can also contact us through the Patreon website or app. With that out of the way, it's time to get into this week's case. So I'll pass you over to Bill for that. Thanks, Harry. Today we are discussing a case that is known in Melbourne as the Society Murders. On the weekend of the 6th and 7th of April in 2002, wealthy 68-year-old Melbourne woman Margaret Wales King's grown children were trying to make contact with her without success. They were concerned immediately as it was extremely out of character for Margaret not to get back in touch with them after they had called. When she didn't show up for a pre-arranged breakfast date with her daughter Emma on Monday the 8th of May 2002, panic set in. Margaret was born on the 16th of June 1933 to parents Doreen May and Robert John Lord. They were a wealthy and privileged family who had made their fortune running one of Victoria's most successful road construction companies in the 1930s through to the 1960s. Margaret and her sister Diana grew up not wanting for anything. In June 1957, Margaret married a man named Brian John Wales, and a year later, the couple had their first daughter, Sally. Following this, they had their other four children, Emma, Prue, Damien, and the youngest, Matthew. In 1968, the year Matthew was born, the family went on a holiday to Brampton Island, which is an island off the shore off Mackay in Queensland, and is located within the Great Barrier Reef. There they met a man named Paul King and became friends with him. Margaret's husband Brian was a commercial pilot and she was often left alone and she leaned on Paul King for friendship and company. Within a year of meeting him, an affair began between Margaret and Paul, who was five years her senior. Paul King was the advertising manager for a successful wool company and quite well off in his own right. In 1975, when Brian learnt of the affair between Paul and his wife, the pair separated and then divorced. When Paul moved in with Margaret and the kids, it created a divide in the family that would never heal, and the older kids blamed Paul for the breakdown of their parents' marriage. The youngest child, Matthew Wales, was only seven when Paul moved in, so he was able to develop a father-son relationship with his stepfather. The fact that Matthew accepted Paul drove a wedge between him and his older siblings. The older siblings believed that Matthew was the favourite child and saw him as a spoilt little brat. They also had little respect for their stepfather, calling him the butler or the shadow, to mock him for his subservient relationship with Margaret. Margaret and Paul married in 1995 and none of the children were invited. Despite the issues running within the family, the children had everything they wanted. They went to the best private schools, took frequent overseas holidays, 
and spent time at their holiday houses. The family certainly was within the upper echelons of Melbourne society. Even as adults, the oldest Wales child, Sally, had her own beach house in Sorrento. Prue had a beach house in Portsea and Emma had a farm in Trentham. The only sibling who was no longer living in Melbourne with the family was Damien, who had moved to Sydney with his wife and was working as a financial trader. In 2002, when they went missing, Margaret and Paul were living in an upmarket home in the prestigious Melbourne suburb Armadale. Armadale is an affluent inner suburb of Melbourne, approximately seven kilometres southeast of the CBD. The suburb contains many high fashion boutiques and trendy salons and restaurants. Just to put it into perspective, Armadale, along with the neighbouring suburb of Turak, where Margaret's daughters lived, is like the Beverly Hills of Victoria. It is also home to some of Melbourne's leading private schools. So after Emma realised that Margaret wasn't going to show up for breakfast as she had previously arranged, she and her brother-in-law went to Margaret and Paul's home to see if they could find them. They found all the lights on inside and the phone flashing with unanswered messages. The bed didn't look slept in, the dishes were unwashed and there was food on the bench. Margaret was not one to leave dishes unwashed in the sink, so Emma was growing more and more concerned. Margaret was an extremely organised, meticulous and neat person. The fact that she had missed breakfast and left out the dishes started to set off alarm bells. Emma also knew that the couple wouldn't have left for a weekend away without letting somebody from the family know, especially because Paul was recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's and was declining quite rapidly. As it turned out, her children weren't the only ones trying to get in touch with Margaret. A friend of hers had tried to drop by on Friday the 6th of May and again on the Saturday because she had found a dog she thought Margaret might like, but nobody had been home either day. Also on the Saturday, a plasterer that Margaret had booked uh, had booked to come over came to the door, but again, nobody answered. Margaret was extremely organised and there was no way she would have arranged a workman to come over without being present to greet them. With all of this knowledge and how out of character her mother's absence was, Emma decided to go to Malvern Police Station and filed a missing persons report for her mother and stepfather. Police went to the house to investigate and found no signs of forced entry at the house. They found the garage empty, but the home alarm system hadn't been activated. They quickly realised they most likely hadn't been on a holiday, as many of the items that would have been taken remained at the house. For example, the couple's sunglasses, mobile phone chargers and medications were still there. Police were able to establish that the last people to see Margaret and Paul were Margaret's youngest son Matthew and his wife Maritza. The couples had had dinner together at Matthew's Glen Iris home, which was two kilometres away from Margaret and Paul's Armadale home. Police went to question Matthew Wales and Maritza about the last time they had seen Margaret and Paul. They recalled that the couple had come over on Thursday the 5th of April to have dinner and play with their grandson Dominic. Matthew and Maritza told police that Margaret and Paul had left at approximately 9.45pm and were believed to be heading straight home. Police realised they needed to find the couple's silver Mercedes E320. Police also took statements from the rest of the Wales siblings, as well as all their wives and husbands, to establish where they had been on the night of the disappearance. 
They also examined all of the family's documents, including telephone records, financial records, and home CCTV security footage. Police were growing concerned for the couple's safety. There had been no movement in either of their bank accounts for five days. Police conducted door knocks in the area to see whether anyone had seen anything or had any helpful information. They visited locations the couple was known to frequent, including a jewellery store in Armadale and a hair salon in Turak Road. On Thursday the 11th of April, one week after the couple disappeared, their Mercedes was found next to a construction site in Middle Park. According to the man who had found the car, it had been there for approximately four days. Police called Damien Wales, who was in possession of the spare key, to join them at the scene. The car was legally parked and locked, and it appeared that due to the lack of fingerprints on the steering wheel, whoever had last driven the car had worn gloves. Reportedly, they did find some hair and blood spots in the car. There was no reason family or friends could think of for the couple to have been in Middle Park. Public interest in the case was growing by the day. On Sunday the 14th of April, police confirmed to the public that they believed the couple had fallen victim to foul play. Behind the scenes, police decided to focus in on the Wales children, who had the most to gain in their mother and stepfather's deaths. They put the siblings under surveillance and planted listening devices in their phones. All the children were potential suspects in the case. With growing media interest, Margaret's oldest son, Damien, fronted the media to make a public appeal on behalf of the family. He said, quote, Please just give us some sort of lead. Please come forward. I don't know why you'd want to hurt our mother or take her from us. Understandably, the Wales children were extremely concerned about the whereabouts of their mother. They banded together and discussed what they should do about Margaret's disappearance. However, one of the Wales children appeared to be missing from the plans to find their mother, and that was Matthew Wales. On the 29th of April, some park rangers were doing their rounds at the Yarra Rangers National Park in Marysville when they came across what they thought was a freshly dug lyrebird nest. They continued on their way until they realised the disturbed soil was probably too large to be dug by lyrebirds. They returned to the area and examined it, digging some soil out of the way. After a couple of minutes, they discovered decomposing human remains buried in a shallow grave. The police were called immediately and arrived soon after along with SES crews, the homicide squad and forensic officers. As soon as police received the report, they knew the identity of the bodies and they were right. Sadly, the remains belonged to the missing couple, Margaret Wales King and Paul King. The discovery of Margaret and Paul also confirmed that the murder was not a robbery as Margaret still had a $90,000 diamond ring on her finger. They found some items at the crime scene that they decided not to share with the public, which included concrete pavers, doona covers, chains, a crowbar and a children's plastic pool. The two bodies were excavated and carefully taken to Melbourne for forensic analysis. In Melbourne, the remains were formally identified as being Margaret Wales King and Paul King. It was revealed in the autopsies that the couple had both been struck to the back of the neck, but that the deaths were most likely caused by asphyxiation. The gravesite was close to a popular walking track in the Yarra Rangers Reserve, 
and this suggested to police that the perpetrator of the murders may not have had a good knowledge of the local area. With news that Margaret and Paul had been found, the already intense media interest in the case intensified and focused in on Margaret Wales King's wealth. The Wales children were obviously absolutely devastated by the discovery of their mother and stepfather's bodies. A small private funeral was held for the couple at St Peter's Church in Turak on Wednesday the 8th of May 2002 with 40 people in attendance. A large public service with 700 mourners was held the next day again at St Peter's. By now, suspicion was starting to focus in on one of the Wales children in particular, Matthew. Police had always looked at him a little more intensely because he was the last one to see the couple at the Thursday night dinner. But they needed to link him to the Marysville area, which was an area he had no association. They looked into his bank records and saw that he had been to a local service station and made an FPOS transaction just 12 hours after his mother and stepfather were last seen. The manager of the service station told police that Matthew had hired a blue Tandic trailer which was 2 by 1.3 metres for $27. He had returned it late, receiving a further $66 late fee. With this knowledge, they were able to take the trailer for forensic testing. The other Wales siblings were also starting to focus in on their brother. Matthew and his wife Maritza had chosen not to sit up the front with the other siblings at the funeral, and in fact seemed to be trying to avoid his brothers and sisters altogether. Damien, Emma, Prue and Sally had all gotten up to speak at the funeral, but Matthew didn't. None of them could get in touch with him when they were trying to call him. The interactions they had with him were strange. Emma felt like he was forcing his emotions and Damien felt like he was holding on to more information than he was sharing. Matthew Wales had always been the black sheep of the Wales siblings. While his mother adored him, giving him ample attention, he didn't have the intelligence and capabilities of his siblings. He often felt like he was in their shadows while they all progressed, he never really took off. He never quite fitted in. He was believed to have an IQ of approximately 81, which is in the bottom 13% of the population and is only 11 points above intellectual disability. Despite this, he was still thought to be his mother's favourite child. She considered him her sweet, innocent little boy. Emma would later say, Mum adored Matthew to the stage where we used to call him Golden Boy. He could do no wrong in Mum's eyes. Matthew was the baby of the family and I feel like he was Mum's absolute masterpiece because he was so beautiful and she was so very into aesthetics. Emma would also recall Matthew's propensity towards violence, especially against animals. Matthew had left Caulfield Grammar School to complete his hairdressing apprenticeship at the John Murray School of Hairdressing. After he finished his apprenticeship, he opened a hair house warehouse franchise at Knox City Shopping Centre in 1997. He had some success with the salon and grew a small, loyal client list. One of his regular clients was a beautiful Chilean girl who was living in Baronia. Her name was Maritza Pizarro. Maritza was the youngest of three children and she moved with her family from Chile to Melbourne in 1976. One day in 1998, Matthew went to Maritza's house to do her hair 
and when he arrived, she answered the door in a see-through negligee and g-string. From that point onwards, they were in a relationship. They married a year later in 1999, and then in 2000 had their first child together, a son named Dominic. The Wales siblings were not a fan of Maritza, with Emma even describing her as a common, vulgar, little gutter snipe. While Matthew thought Maritza was the most amazing woman, his siblings and mother did not approve of him marrying a Chilean-born, middle-class woman. For Matthew, Maritza was the meaningful and unconditional relationship he didn't feel like he'd had with his own family. The family saw her as a gold digger. On the 10th of May, 2002, Maritza Wales went to her lawyer and requested that she was willing to give a statement in exchange for the avoidance of jail time. At the same time, all the siblings, except Matthew, gathered at the Mornington Peninsula to have a memorial for their mother. While they did that, they talked about what they should do. They believed that their brother might be involved in the murder of their mother and stepfather. It was a hard spot to be in. Sally recalled how she had asked him straight up whether he had any extra information about the murders and he hadn't looked her in the eyes. After discussing it, Damien called the police to let them know the Wales siblings thought that Matthew might be involved in the murder. He was taken to St Kilda Road Police Station for questioning. Police pulled Matthew Wales over in East Kew after he had dropped off Dominic at a specific address. They took him to St Kilda Road Police Complex and charged him with the murder of his mother and stepfather. Meanwhile, forensic investigators used a search warrant to gain access to Matthew and Maritza Wales's garage. Luminol testing revealed a large amount of blood in the garage, which had been cleaned up. They also found items that were consistent with items found at the disposal scene. It didn't take long for Matthew to confess to the murders and tell his story. He told police that he had stolen some blood pressure medication from Maritza's mother last time they had been at their house. Knowing what he was planning to do, he invited his mother and stepfather over for dinner. The first time he invited them, he had to cancel because Dominic was sick, so they rescheduled for the 4th of April 2002. On the 4th of April 2002, Matthew began making dinner, preparing minestrone soup. He knew in choosing this meal that his mother and stepfather would love it, but Maritza wouldn't. He ground up a mixture of blood pressure tablets and Panadine Fort and put it into a wine glass to use later that night. While the soup was cooking, he went outside and collected a large piece of pine that he'd been storing in the garage. After trying to hide it in the kitchen, he decided to put it behind a hedge near the front door. At approximately 5.30pm, Maritza got home from working at her boutique. Margaret and Paul arrived at the house at 6.45pm. Matthew sat everyone at the table while he went to prepare dinner. He poured the soup and added the powder he had made earlier into two of the bowls. While at the dinner table, Margaret sang Twinkle Twinkle to Dominic while he danced. Dominic then showed all of his toys to Paul and told him their names. Matthew told police towards the end of the night his mother turned to him and asked, Matthew, did you put something in our meal? I, th I feel drowsy. At approximately 9.30pm, Maritza made milk for Dominic, kissed her parents-in-law goodnight and took her son upstairs to bed. 
At this stage, Margaret and Paul decided to go home. Matthew led them outside and then let them go through the door in front of him. Just as Margaret began telling him he needed to neaten up his front yard, Matthew turned off the porch front light, grabbed his piece of pine and swung it hard into the back of Margaret's neck. According to Matthew, she fell to the ground and broke her nose on the way down. He then turned on Paul, hitting him across the neck and then over and over again. When Maritza came downstairs, she saw the house was in darkness and the front door was wide open. She went outside to see what was going on and saw her parents-in-law laying on the ground in pools of their own blood. She yelled at Matthew, what have you done? And he replied, I hit them, I hit them. Maritza then reportedly ran upstairs to vomit. Matthew chased her and asked, do you hate me for what I've done? She replied, I don't know. Matthew then dragged his parents' bodies over the fence where they would be shielded from the view of the road and covered them up with Dominic's plastic pool. He put on plastic gloves and drove his mother's Mercedes to Middle Park before catching a taxi back and having it drop him a few blocks from home. As we stated earlier, the next morning he went to the petrol station to hire a trailer. He then went to his local hardware store and bought chains, shackles and cord. He put his mother inside a green doona cover and Paul into a blue doona cover and tied them up with the cord connected to chain and concrete blocks. His original intention was to throw them into the Yarra River. He placed his mother and stepfather into a trailer, covered them up with a tarp and tied down each of the corners. He stored this in the garage. The next morning he went to a different hardware store and bought industrial strength cement cleaner along with a matic which is a tool shaped like a pickaxe, which is used for digging and chopping. He called his parents' phone to leave a message and, in his mind, throw suspicion off himself. He then hooked up the trailer to his four-wheel drive and made his way towards the Maroondah Highway, disposing of blood-soaked clothing along the way. After three hours of driving, he came to the Yarra Ranges National Park and stopped off a quiet dirt track. He found an area he felt was suitable and began to dig, leaving his mother and stepfather in a shallow grave. As he was leaving the area, he was surprised when a white four-wheel drive started driving towards him. He slammed on his brakes, drawing attention to himself. The occupants of the white four-wheel drive thought that he was an illegal deer hunter, but that was enough for them to take a mental note of what they had seen. After they heard two bodies had been discovered in the area, they quickly called Warburton Police to inform them of what they had seen. So now that police had arrested and charged Matthew, his siblings were left wondering what could have driven him to kill their mother and stepfather. Because the family was so wealthy, money was the most obvious motive and had become a contentious topic in recent times. Margaret was worth approximately $6 million her original will said the money would be split equally between her husband Paul and the children if she were to die. Two weeks before her death, Margaret changed her will, most likely because of how Paul had deteriorated. The new will said that the money must be used to care for Paul for the rest of his life and then the remainder would be put into six separate trusts, one for Emma's eldest daughter and five equally split for her grown children. The condition she placed on the trust money was that nobody could access it until 10 years after she died. It was obvious she had thought very carefully about what would happen to her fortune after she died. 
At times, the whale's siblings felt like their mother was trying to control them with her money, whether intentional or not. While Margaret felt like she was helping and protecting her children by giving them some access to her money, it appeared it was turning them against each other and they also began to resent her. Matthew had a complete lack of remorse about taking the lives of his mother and stepfather and in fact seemed to think he had done his siblings a favour by getting rid of them. His low IQ, coupled with his tendencies towards violence, was a dangerous combination. He didn't seem to be able to separate his own resentments and deeply harboured hatred for his mother from his siblings' feelings towards her. He felt as though he was the victim in the situation, telling police, I walked through my sister's house the other day and I realised that everybody else's photo was up except mine. The remaining Wales siblings were horrified at learning that their brother Matthew had been charged with the murder of their mother. They didn't want to believe that he could have planned it. They believed that Maritza must have had more to do with it than what they were being told, despite the fact that there was no evidence of Maritza being involved more than perverting the course of justice, which she had already been charged with. On the 5th of December 2002, Margaret's daughter-in-law, Elizabeth Wales, called Neil Mitchell at 3AW on the radio and told him, We are all very unhappy with Maritza's being charged with perverting the course of justice, and obviously she can't be charged with anything else at this stage because there is not enough concrete evidence, but there are enough anomalies to make you wonder. The Wales family employed a PR firm to promote the idea that Maritza had played a bigger role in the murder to the media and also to separate themselves from Matthew and Maritza. The case against Matthew Wales was heard by Justice John Coldry in 2003. Matthew Wales showed little emotion in court except towards his wife Maritza who sobbed beside him. He pled guilty to the murders of his mother, Margaret Wales King, and his stepfather, Paul King. His wife, Maritza, had earlier pled guilty to perverting the course of justice. She was given a two-year suspended sentence, much, much to the displeasure of the other Wales family members. Matthew was sentenced to 30 years in prison with a minimum sentence of 24 years. It is believed that none of his siblings have visited him in prison since he was convicted. He has been visited once by his father and once by Paul King's brother, who say that he has expressed no remorse for his actions, except for towards Maritza and Dominic. He told his father Brian, My motive is clear, just utter hatred for the couple, which I have had for the past eight years. Our thoughts go out to members of the Wales and King families who have been negatively affected by this brutal and heinous crime. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. And until next time, please stay safe.